This is the commercial property show, Australia. Show number 50. Two weeks before settlement, we're able to go in there and basically sit with them and essentially work in the business with them so we get a good understanding of how the business operates, client base, how all the systems work, get to know the staff rather than you getting keys on settlement day and go, well, where is everything? And hi, my name's Jay and what's your name? And kind of fumbling your way through it. If you can do that handover period, it um, yeah certainly helps you hit that ground running. Hey, commercial property community. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Andrew Bean and we made it to show 50, the half century. That's amazing. I can't believe it. I'm feeling pretty good today. I thought I might offer a special 50 episode discount on CP Data, the only commercial property platform that gives you specific local market data and can make you a local market expert in minutes. So here's how it's going to work. What you need to do, you need to go to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You need to give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Take a screenshot of your rating and review and then send me a text and say, Hey, Andrew, I want to get the 50-episode special and send me the screenshot of the rating and review that you had. Send me your email address and your name. And then I'll create a custom 20% discount for you for CP Data, the only platform that delivers local market data on commercial property broken down sector by sector. That's a 20% discount for the 50 episode special. All right. Text me on 0410. 694-633 to get your discount today. Now to the show. In today's show, Jay Anderson returns to go on with part two of the Motel series. This is almost like becoming the ultimate guide to buying motels. Definitely a quick start guide if you want to get into this. Today, we go through how to make an offer, what terms you need to be making, uh, due diligence on the legal side of it and the building side of it, and then also handover of the business. Extremely informational, a lot of good tips here, as always, and I hope you like it. All right, but first... Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. 
My next guest is buyer's agent and third-generation hotelier. It's Jay Anderson. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks for having me back on. No worries, mate. You are very, very welcome. So for the listeners who didn't catch Jay back in episode 45, can you just share a little bit about your property background, mate? I'm a property buyer's agent. got a company called Jay Anderson Property, but my family's background's in the commercial property space. So we've been investing in motels since the late 1950s and then, yeah, built a uh, commercial property portfolio and, and resi portfolio from there. So we've been doing it in the family for quite a long time. Beautiful. So today, mate, we're continuing with part two of the motel series, and that's making offers, conducting due diligence, and handing over the business. So, mate, in terms of a motel investment, what are the terms you like to use when you're making an offer on an asset? Yeah, look, good question. And I think when you make an offer, regardless of what it is, I think it's the first step. It's always very important to understand both sides. So understand the seller and the purchaser's position. What's the reason for sale or what's the reason for purchase? The needs and wants of both parties before putting an offer forward. The individual terms will vary not only property to property, but purchaser to purchaser. Things like due diligence. Do we need a due diligence clause in there? Or have we already done the front-end due diligence? If we need a due diligence clause, how long is it for? And what entails the due diligence under the contract. Another thing would be finance. Is it subject to finance? Do we need finance? But the two big ones would typically be most common, subject to due diligence, subject to finance. Building and pest would typically fall under the due diligence component. If we're buying a freehold going concern, so that's both the property and the business together, we'll always try and negotiate a handover period. So typically it'll be a maybe a two-week handover period. So two weeks before settlement, we're able to go in there and basically sit with them and essentially work in the business with them. So we get a good understanding of how the business operates, client base, how all the systems work, get to know the staff and whatnot. So that's a good one to always negotiate and put in an offer rather than you getting keys on settlement day and go, well, where is everything? And hi, my name's Jay and what's your name? And kind of fumbling your way through it. If you can do that handover period, it um, yeah certainly helps you hit that ground running. Yeah, that's a good tip, mate. I didn't think about that because I, I was thinking that, God, this is going to be a lot of work for one handover day, but that's a good tip there having a two-week period. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it would be uh, very, very scary if you didn't have that and trying to work it all out on uh, on settlement day. Another one that I like to uh, put in as well is that the valuation will come back in at the contract price as well. Have you ever used that one? More put that under just the finance clause. So if if you put a very loose, generic subject to finance approval clause, if the vowel doesn't come back in, well, we've either got a chance to renegotiate or terminate the contract under the finance clause. Yeah, fair enough. So, mate, in terms of the contract of sale, are there any like uh, big ticket items that, that need to be checked off first when you're going through that document? Yeah, and I guess it forms part of the bigger due diligence picture. In the last episode, we spoke about due diligence around location and, and whatnot. When it comes to, I guess, the more legal side of DD and contract reviews, obviously there's the, the standard legal review that needs to be done by a lawyer. But the other components, I guess, that form part of the the due diligence there are, I break it down into five different categories, which is essentially the finance, risk, 
legal, technical and planning. So on the legal side, it's lease agreements, contract review, understanding what the inclusions are, especially if you're buying a big asset like a motel, there can be a lot of inclusions. It's really important that they're all documented and you understand and a lot of clarity around what is actually included. Are there any restrictions? We read the operation of the business itself, whether that be hours or whatnot. So that's, I guess, the legal side when it forms a bit more of the contract. And then you start bringing in other areas like the finance due diligence, where, again, that's part of the lease review. And then also understanding things like rent increases. Are there rent increases in the lease? If they are, is it CPI? Is it fixed? Is there a market rent review clause? If there is, is there a ratchet clause? Outgoings. Outgoings are a big thing that are often missed. So what are the outgoings? And more importantly, who's responsible for the outgoings? Is it the tenant or is it the landlord? I guess the big one is really understanding what the true net income of the property is. So all of that forms, I guess, part of the the overarching due diligence of once you start getting to contracts and lease reviews and whatnot. Didn't the uh, the ratchet clause get outlawed in certain states? I've seen it a little bit, but it doesn't get put into contracts like leases now, does it? It still does, but it depends if it's under a retail lease or another commercial lease. So still in motel leases, we certainly still have. And for the ratchet clause, can you just explain what it actually is for the listeners that don't know what that means? Yeah, so typically at the end of a lease term, there will be a market rent review clause, which essentially says... At the time of taking out the next option on the next, let's say, five-year period, we do a market rent review. So what's the actual rent of the property? And looking at comparables in the area and whatnot, what is the actual market rent of the property? If there's a disparity between the two, then the rent could either go upwards or downwards. If the landlord and the tenant don't agree on the change, then there's normally provisions within the lease to say how that's handled. And that's typically bringing in an independent valuer. But a ratchet clause is basically protection of the rent going downwards. So protection for the landlord of saying, well, market rent review, if the actual rent of the property is 200000 a year and the market rent's 160000 the ratchet clause protects the down, I guess, the reduction of rent to meet market rent review. In addition to ratchet clauses, you can also have a thing called ceiling and collar. So it might be it can only go up or can only go down within a 5% tolerance of the actual rent itself. But that's certainly something to look for because part of the due diligence is you want to make sure that the actual rent is in line or closely in line with the market because if the tenant's paying way above what the actual market rent is when you come up to that option term and if you don't have protection via a ratchet clause or a cap or collar you know the rent could uh, be reduced quite significantly and then it would heavily impact your investment yeah i guess you don't really want to be relying on a ratchet clause either you want to make sure that your property is being rented at fair market or just a little bit under fair market so you have a good room to grow and you're not like worried about it going down Spot on. And I think the big thing with motel investments and commercial investments is you want your tenant to be successful. Yeah. Better they can do in the business, the longer they're going to stay, the more they're going to invest back into the property itself. And it's a kind of win-win for everybody rather than having a property where the tenant's paying way above market rent. They're not going to want to invest back in the property and they're going to be looking for an exit. Yeah, that's right. So mate, with our vendor contracts, I know they're a big thing on, on self-storage is what I'm chasing, but with motels, I'm sure they're very much the same. 
how do you check if there are undisclosed vendor contracts, like these little handshake agreements, and should you carry on with them? Yeah, so in terms of service contracts and yeah. Um, so that would form part of the due diligence and part of the handover period. If you ask specific questions as part of your due diligence around any contracts, agreements, anything like that with any third parties, then you've got to, you know, once you review those, you can have a look. Are they legitimate? Are they in line with the industry? Is it something we want to take? But it's certainly yeah, a good point to raise. That should certainly be covered in the due diligence. Yeah, fair enough. And, and in your experience, have you ever carried on vendor contracts or would you keep them to a minimum, like 12 months? Because like, you don't really want to be locked into some crazy price that you didn't really negotiate on your terms. And unfair to that, you know, if the property has been run or been managed or mismanaged badly, the vendor contracts can sometimes be part of the reason why they're going so poorly because you have a bad operator or a bad service provider there. Would you keep those to a very, very minimum or just basically cut them and go for new people? I guess it'd be really done on a case-by-case basis. Who is the service provider? Is it someone in the industry or an organization in the industry that's well known? And then have a look at what the service agreement is versus what's the standard in the industry. And I think going through that process, you'll be able to identify which ones you want to keep, which ones you want to renegotiate, or even reaching out to those service providers, letting them know that you are the new or soon to be the new owner and you want to renegotiate terms or enter a new service contract. Yeah, fair enough. So, mate, do you actually buy the business entity as well, or do you avoid buying anything associated with the entity outside of the freehold? Yeah, we typically would go in with our own entities. Yeah. So we wouldn't buy an existing entity because yeah, the, there's, I guess, increased risks with doing so. So, yeah, we'd typically buy, if we're buying freehold going concern, we'd split the purchase in two components. One would be the business itself, which we would typically buy in a separate entity. And then the freehold investment or the land of the real estate itself, we would buy in a different entity. So that gives us a better exit strategy when we are wanting to sell off a leasehold and retain just the freehold investment if we've already purchased it in two separate entities. Makes it a lot cleaner. Yeah, definitely. And you because when you buy into a, an asset and you're buying into someone else's entity, you're opening yourself up for litigations in the past because now you yep. own that entity. So yep. it can be a big risk. Spot on. So, mate, in terms of due diligence, we already covered the location, supply and demand in part one. Can you share some of the, the main checkpoints for the legal aspect in the building itself? Like, what would you really do there? Yeah, I guess on, on the technical side, a, a thorough building and pest inspection is important. But even more so, as part of your due diligence, when you've got a motel, you know, it can be anywhere from five rooms to 80 rooms. It's important to really have a list of the condition of all of the fixtures and fittings, all yeah. of the really, really important to get a really good understanding of the overall condition of the property. Because I've seen it time and time again, where you go to inspect a, a motel or something like that, and they might have one room ready for you to look at. That's guaranteed it's going to be the best room in the house. And it's gone through with a fine tooth comb. We want to look at as much as we can and when the property is occupied and you know there's, there's guests staying there, sometimes that might involve doing multiple inspections and keeping a, a bit of a register of what rooms you've inspected and overall condition and whatnot. And then, yeah, the building and pest, structural engineers, you know, also good to get a plumber and electrician out as well to get a good feel of the overall condition of the property. 
details and information on any past capex, any past capital expenditure done on the property. Sometimes that can highlight some problem areas, whether it be ongoing roof leaks or, or whatever it may be. Maintenance, have a look at maintenance budget over the past few years. Where's the maintenance gone? Sometimes that can raise little red flags on maybe something that you need to have a look at a little bit closer. They would be, I guess, the high-level things in terms of the condition of the property itself. They're the boxes that we would want to tick. But I think the biggest and the most important thing to look at in due diligence would be if you're buying a freehold investment is definitely the lease. So the lease itself is really the Bible when it comes to commercial. It's probably the most important document there is. And it would be the most, probably the number one reason where we pull out and don't proceed with a purchase would be something to do with the lease. So getting a commercial, an experienced commercial lawyer, I think is crucial. And so what's your stance on like for like swimming pools? Would you prefer a motel with a swimming pool or not to have it at all? Is it just a headache? It would come down to the lease. So if there is a pool, I want to make sure that the tenant is responsible for the maintenance, the safety, registration, replacement of filters, all of that would be on the the tenant themselves and then matching it to what area it's in. So if you had a motel in Cairns or something like that, I think it's important for the success of the business for it to have a pool. But if you're in a much colder climate or something like that, maybe it's not as important. But a pool at an accommodation provider is something that can be a determining factor for guests. Having a swim with the kids or after work or something like that, it can be a uh, an important thing for guests when they're making a booking. So I think it's important of understanding who your client base is, where the property yep. is, and then who's responsible for repairs, maintenance, and whatnot of the pool. Yeah, fair enough. And that's in the case of when you're buying the freehold and you've already got a, a tenant in place in the leasehold. Correct, yeah. So, mate, what do you do with existing staff? Do you always keep people on? Do you fire them? How do you go about that? Because I'm sure that's an issue. Yeah. When you do that two-week handover period is when you really get a good insight into the staff. I guess hold it, retaining existing staff, there always is a positive because from day one for the first couple of months or whatever it may be, they know that property better than you do. They know whether it be the regular repeat clients, any issues with the property, processes, standards and procedures that are followed. You can learn a lot from the existing staff, but also at the same time, you don't want to take on headaches or someone else's problems. So having open conversations with the vendor about staff and even essentially going through getting a list of staff and having a chat about an each different staff member, having interviews with the staff to get a know and a feel for them. But in that two-week handover period is where you'll really learn a lot about the existing staff, and then you can make a decision on what's the best way forward for you and the business. Yeah, and once again, like if you're buying a, a motel that's underperforming, it's an underperforming business, that staff member probably has a good hand in the reason why that motel is probably underperforming. Would you put them through, because I'm sure that you would have a very well-established business model and that you just overlay onto motels with, you know, standard operating procedures and things like that, the way that you guys do business professionally. And in potentially you're buying this motel from a mum and dad operation that has one that really doesn't care about it that much. They've had it forever. Do you onboard them like they're a new staff member and have to run them through all the training again? Definitely. Yeah. As much as you can learn from the existing staff, you can also teach them a lot as well. So giving the opportunity, putting them through training programs, 
systems and, and procedures that we know and use, but also important to listen to them. The staff sometimes know your business better than you do, or they at least know your business in a different way to that you do, because they're the front line. They're the ones that are seeing, touching, working in it every day, having that client-facing interaction, maybe seeing parts of the business or parts of the building that you aren't seeing every day. So you can learn a lot from them. So it's always important to be listening and, um, yeah, I guess taking feedback on board and then using that increased knowledge and information and, and making the right decision on what's best for the staff and the business overall. And so what are some of the main things on hand every day? So we've done our two-week period, and yep. this is the actual day that we are taking control of the asset. What are some of the things that need to be checked off on that day? Keys to all areas. Make sure you've got all the keys. I see it happen <laughs> time and time again, but, you know, it's the the storeroom down the back or, you know, one of the cupboards or whatever it may be, and you don't have the keys. And that can be quite a task in itself of having, creating a bit of a key register and making sure you've got keys for every single door. And there could be hundreds of doors. Access and logins and the admin rights to all systems. So property management system, websites, uh, you know, all of the the third-party booking systems, booking.com and whatnot, make sure you've got logons and access to all systems. If you Google the business itself and you find all the different weird and wonderful websites or directories or whatever it may be where the property is listed, and if you're going to go through a rebranding process, it's important that you've got access to all of those different directories and platforms so you can go in and update it. The new branding or new descriptions or new photos or, or whatever it may be. And then the third one would probably be a telephone directory of things from tradies to account managers, service contacts, just having a list of of a telephone directory of numbers of staff and and whatnot. They're probably the three big ones that you want to make sure you've got on hand over day. Yeah, that's interesting, getting all your ducks in a row. So, mate, in terms of the keys, obviously there could be hundreds in a motel. Would you bother getting the motel re-keyed or would you just kind of roll with what you got? Typically, you wouldn't because it would just be a huge, huge expense. Yeah. Where we would get keys recut would be things like keys to reception, the commercial kitchen, you know, changing codes on safes, manager residence, stuff like that is where we would probably get the keys recut upon settlement. But in terms of keys for the rooms and whatnot, if they're hard physical keys, no. But if they're electronic keys, like you see in a lot of the hotels and the motels that have been renovated, it's just a matter of recutting the master key and then revisiting each one of those locks, tapping the key, and that basically will wipe access for any past master keys that have been created or room keys themselves. Yeah, I love the technology now. It's so easy to take control of the asset and basically lock people out if they're not doing the right thing. Yeah. So, mate, you mentioned safes. Is there usually a safe on site in these motels? Yeah, there would be just from um, obviously the cash handling with more and more credit card transactions and pre-bookings and whatnot. Cash handling is a lot, lot less than it used to be, but there will always be, you know, as there will be with most customer facing businesses that are taking cash, there'll be some sort of a safe on premises. And that might not just be for cash. It might be for master keys. It might be for a number of important documents or whatnot, but typically we'll always have a, a safe on site. And when you're dealing with, obviously, you're dealing with cash, 
how do you work out the float? Like, how do you work out how much money you need to have on site when you change over? Because would obviously when you're changing over, the money that they had already in the till, would they would take it? Or would that be part of the sale? How does that work? It would all be part of the negotiations, but typically any bookings and any cash received up until the date of settlement will be the seller. Any yep. forward bookings or whatnot will, will go to the purchaser. But in terms of float and amount and whatnot, general rule of thumb, we would do about 500 bucks and then you would tweak that, I guess, as suited to the individual business itself. Yeah, because it's quite interesting, like, if there's money in the till or money in the safe, like, it's like, okay, I'm CEO, this is my money, and it'd be quite hard to potentially count every single dollar. There's probably a little bit of discrepancy there. Yeah. So, mate, you mentioned the advertising contracts. How do you check if there are actually existing advertising contracts, like on your booking.com? And is it, it's called something else, isn't it? I can't remember the name of what it's called, third-party no. advertising or something, something like that. OTAs or third-party booking engines. Yeah. Yep. So the agreement to that. Part of the checking process we'll go before handover is, again, going back to that, just Google the business, find every platform that it's advertised on, and then creating a bit of a checklist of going, well, do we have logons? Do we have service agreements? What are they? Do we have a contact, a point of contact for all of these platforms? And yeah, going through one by one and then reaching out to them, I guess. And we'll always try and do a bit of a, a rebranding, whether it's a full rebranding of new name and a bit of a renovation or facelift or even just updating photos and descriptions and whatnot. So with the all the third party booking engines, yeah, it's important to have all that ready to go when you take over the business. And after you've taken over the property and you've already had your, your development like uh, rebranding strategy put together, what's the first thing that you would do? What's the first thing that the easy thing that you attack first? Case by case basis. What's the online presence like? How does the property present on the third party websites at booking.com? Are they terrible photos that have been taken off uh, an original iPhone that are blurry and pixelated or whatnot? Or are they professional photos? That can make a huge difference in itself. And it's something that can be done really quickly. Descriptions. Is there a social media presence? If there is, sometimes if it's not great, that can be detrimental to the business. So just how does your property or the business appear to the end consumer? And again, does that going back to Google, Googling the business, how does it present? A lot of the times that stuff can be fixed up very, very quickly. Website as well. You know, some of the, some of the websites floating around uh, look like they're straight out of the early 90s. <laughs> it's the first impression a lot of people get about your business. So stuff like that is probably the first things that I would check and, and look at fixing up. And so with the social media accounts that obviously aren't doing that well, would you just delete those straight away? I have done in the past. I guess it depends on what they look like, how much, I guess, interaction and followers and whatnot there has been. You want to be careful just deleting it because you can be losing contact with some of your loyal customer base. But if the content on there or whatever it is, is not something that you want to be associated with, whether it be you know, political or whatever it may be, and you don't think it's in line with you or your business, either deleting those old posts or yeah, removing the account, but always mindful, even little things like if you are going to rebrand and launch a new website, do a affording thing from the old URL. Mm. Some people can be so focused in rebranding and whatnot, but if this motel has been around for 30 years and they've got, you know, the Jones family who have been coming every six months for the last 10 years and whatnot, if you cut all ties with the old brand, 
and apart from typing in the address, old loyal customers can't find you. That can hurt your business as well. So it's important to be quite strategic about it, I guess, and not just rushing in and deleting and changing everything is is thinking about the pros and cons or the outcome of any decision you're going to make when it comes to that rebranding or marketing. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I see a lot of similarities between motels and your, your self-storage because in self-storage, you really, and motels, you're really managing like your online presence and your physical location presence. Like you really have to manage both of those really well. It's not exactly the same when you're just buying uh, an industrial investment. You don't really need to manage that online presence. But with these two asset types, there's quite a lot of similarities. Yeah, definitely. Spot on. And yeah, I guess about who your target customer is and how would they be finding your business or if they're looking for self-storage or a motel, somewhere to stay, how would they be going about about finding your business and basically going through that process like the end user, like your customer, and then having a look at how your property is being or your business is being presented? Yeah. So, mate, when you're renovating a property, would you do it all at once or would you stage it? Majority of the time you'd stage it. Just use an example of, let's say, bigger hotels. If it's, you know, like a 10-story hotel or whatever it may be, you would do, let's say, you would close the floor above and the floor below whilst you're renovating the floor in between just for noise management and whatnot. And then you would progressively move up or move down the property. For a motel, you might block out wings. You might do rooms one to five first. And then once they're finished, you can advertise them online for a higher rate. And then you start on the next lot. The only time you would ever do a, I guess, a complete close down and and full renovation would be if you were taking a rundown three-star motel and you're wanting to reposition it as a four and a half star, you know, beachside motel or whatever. And you're going through an extensive renovation to really reposition it rather than giving it a bit of a facelift. But yeah, typically you would stage it. Yeah, beautiful. And I guess you're obviously getting that increased rate after you finish each one. So you're not getting a nice bump there in um, in your income. Yeah, correct. So mate, when you're handing over like our uh, services, would you usually do that on like services like electricity, water and things like that? Is that done on day one of handover contracts or would you like pro rata that for the end of the month and then have a payback period to the, the original owner? So- How has that worked in the, in the past? There'd be adjustments as part of the settlement. So yeah, everything would be changed over day one. But any amounts that have been paid up until settlement or until settlement date would be the vendor's cost and responsibility. And then settlement forward would be the purchaser. So there'd be a lot of adjustments to be worked out with the solicitors on on what's to be adjusted and, and whatnot. But then service contracts, yeah, you'd certainly either be having those conversations during that handover, two week handover period and having everything ready to go on settlement day. And in terms of notifying guests that there's been a changeover of ownership, would you notify the guests that are pre-booked that the ownership has changed? If you're going through a rebranding, I think it can be good. And especially if you, um, even if it is just new management or new ownership, sending a courtesy email out and even something like, you know, just to welcome you and whatnot, give them a little uh, a gift upon arrival or whatever it may be, just a nice little note introducing yourself. I think that can certainly work in your favour, a nice additional little touch point for your clients. And so on like day one when you, you're taking over a motel, 
I guess this is going to be case by case, but when would you start increasing the rates? Could you walk in there day one and go, okay, these rates are ridiculously low. I'm going to double them. Would you do that? You definitely can do, and we've done that in, in the past. But, it's yeah, it's really on case-by-case basis. Whereabouts in the market do you position yourself? What are your competitors doing? Having a look at the service offering of each, having a look at your competition. Do they have a pool? Do they have a restaurant? What's the standard of accommodation? Do they have Wi-Fi? Do they have in-house movies? Whatever it may be. And work out where you position yourself in the market and do your rates align with that. So part of the due diligence, especially if you're buying the business, it's I think it's really important to go and go and stay in the area, go and visit your competitors, go and stay in their accommodation, understand what your competition is. And then the big thing that I guess has come about in the in the accommodation industry is yield management, which is adjusting your prices on a uh, supply and demand basis and consistently looking and reviewing that. So it's not like the old days. Like, at the beginning of a financial year or a calendar year, you'd print your rate book and they would be your rates for the next 12 months. You know, you'd have your peak and off peak and holiday season, but your rates really outside of those wouldn't change. But nowadays it's much like the airlines, depending on how many rooms you've got left or whatever it is, you'll be adjusting your room rates constantly. So that revenue management and yield management component of running a motel business is very, very important. And it's something that's often overlooked. So part of the due diligence, having a look at that, are the rates correct? When you take over the business, can you adjust the rates? And sometimes that might even be dropping the rates, not just increasing. So if they've been wanting advertising room rates above where it should actually sit, that might be a reason why the business has been doing so poorly and why they're only running it 20% 20% occupancy when their competition's running at 60% occupancy. Yeah, it's exactly the same in self storage. So like, obviously, the mum and dad owners, they don't do any kind of dynamic revenue management. They just have a rate and it doesn't matter if they're 100% full or they're 100% vacant, they're charging the same price. If you can just come in and understand how to do dynamic pricing, which is exactly what you said, on the planes, everyone's paying a different price. In a lot of the motels, in some cases, in hotels, different booking sites will have different prices and you can see that online like one of the obviously the good things that you want to do is you want to buy motels and and self-storage facilities that aren't you know putting this management system in place because then you can draw out every single dollar and as we all know in commercial property every single dollar counts because it's traded on a capitalization rate so spot on and it's something you know can change a business essentially overnight as well yeah uh, by implementing you know smart revenue management strategies So, mate, using your investment strategy, how long would you plan to operate the business before you would potentially sell the leasehold off? Our individual strategy is always has a plan to sell sell the leasehold. So the timeline between, I guess, acquisition and then selling the leasehold really depends on the numbers and how quickly we can change those numbers and then what the market rent we could achieve So if it's a very, very poorly run, poorly positioned, poorly presented motel, and we can turn that around quite quickly, it might be only six, nine, 12 months. If there's more work involved or more extensive renovations, it might be a couple of years. But it's really just about knowing your numbers before you're going into the deal. What's the target rent you want to be able to achieve? And then selling the lease, collecting that rent, and yeah, sitting back and looking for the next project. So realistically, in terms of your strategy, you don't really want to be operating the business at all. You just want to be the actual owner and collecting rent. 
Is that right? Correct. Yeah. That's awesome. So, mate, in terms of returns for motels now, have you seen a dip in the predictable returns since COVID? And is that something that you've like built into your numbers now? Yeah, definitely seen yield compression across the motel industry. So pre-COVID, we were kind of buying stuff around 8.2, Most of that stuff is you know, around 7% now or even mid to high sixes. So certainly see a lot of yield compression. We're seeing more, I guess, new players, new investors come into the space as well, which is interesting, which is, I think is good for the industry as a whole. But I still think there's a lot of opportunity to be had in uh, well-positioned, well-run motels. Yeah, it's all about location, location, location. And in terms of the actual income from the end user, does that go up and down a lot more now since COVID? Yeah, I guess it's really specific to the area. So some motels in some areas are doing bigger numbers than they've ever done yep. and others have been decimated. So it's kind of really specific to the location of the property itself. But yes, some are doing incredibly well as a result of COVID and those family getaways and tree change, sea change, people exploring new areas and whatnot. But then, yes, yeah, some areas are really doing it tough. And we touched on it previously before with the online presence, but do you have a specific marketing strategy? Like, are you actually doing like Google ads, Facebook ads, like things like that? Do you have a marketing strategy around how you will basically improve your online presence, not just with a website? Yeah. And I guess it's, again, specific to the property and the mark and the target client base themselves. So if we're buying in an area and our target client wants to be the corporate traveling sales reps, we're going to have a very different marketing strategy to if we were a coastal town and we're wanting to target holiday makers in, in uh, school holidays. So it's important to understand who your ideal client is and then working out on what's the best channels and avenues of getting your business name in front of them, whether that's social media or Google ads or reaching out to corporates direct. Yeah, it's important to understand who your ideal client is and not just trying to get anyone and everyone being quite strategic about yeah, who you want and what's the best way to approach them and target them. And would you ever use a third party like advertiser for that to take care of that kind of strategy plan? Or would you like doing that yourself? I think we've been doing it long enough and know the industry well enough. We can do it ourselves, but yeah, certainly if you engaged a third party, um, I think it's important just to, have a really good understanding of who your target market is or the marketing uh, company themselves will be able to help you identify that. But understanding the rationale or the thought process behind who your target market is, because you might have an idea of you want holiday makers or corporate reps or whatnot. But if that segment that you're targeting is not the most lucrative or dominant or accessible market for where your property is or the position of where your property sits within your competition, then it doesn't make sense. So really, really important to understand your local market and what the breakdown of customers and yeah, I guess your clients are. Well, I guess I can see a lot of opportunity in this market, mate, with the motels and the tourism. I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Just got to find people like yourself that know how to do it and do the due diligence. So mate, where can the listeners go to find out more about yourself and your company? Yes, just Google Jay Anderson Property or jayanderson.com.au or any of the social media channels. It's just, yeah, Jay Anderson Property. Perfect, mate. Today's guest has been Jay Anderson. Cheers, buddy. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye.
data don't lie. That's right, in this segment I'm going to share the information and data from CP Data, the newest commercial property platform on the market. So I'm going to share one location, good or bad, and give you a true reflection of what the numbers are saying about that market. All right, this week's location is Canberra. Yes, Canberra in ACT. Very, very interesting city. Don't pay any stamp duty there, which is always good. All right, I'll just bring it up in CP data, last month's sales transactions. So in CP data, we have a, uh, a rate per square meter guide. So that's all, all here looking actually like you can still get some pretty nice yields in Canberra if you keep your eyes out. So for the retail sector, the sales transactions last month, there was five retail properties sold. For last month, there was 58 for sale with a listed stock on hand of 7.3%. All right, going to the office sector. So the sales transaction, there were seven offices sold in Canberra last month. For sale, there were 69 properties. Listed stock on hand is pretty low at 3.9%. Uh, moving to industrial, which or industrial usually looks good in most locations. There are some locations it doesn't, but the industrial is always good because everyone knows it's pretty much the darling of commercial property right now. So there was five transactions for industrial assets in Canberra. There was 22 for sale last month and the listed stock on hand is pretty low at 2.6%. I can see moving into the trending data for retail uh, office and industrial that the stock on hand has been going down. So it's a nice little trending graph going down for retail. Same for office, it's been trending down. In March last year, there was a listed stock on hand of 7.9%. That represented 130 for sale. And now there's only 3.9%. So, you know, it's definitely moving in the right direction. For industrial, the trending graph, it's just moving a nice downward trend. Uh, in March last year, there was 8.3% of the listed stock on hand. And now in January, there's only 2.6%. You know, that could be because of, you know, Christmas and things like that. We'll see what the next month comes up with. All right, moving on to the leasing data. Let me just change the date ranges because in CP data, you can choose which dates you want to check. I like to use last month's to see the data so in for the retail sector now in cp data you also get a, a rate per square meter guide so that really is important if you're finding under rented property which is the best way to increase the value just simply being able to find a property that's under market rent and then bringing that up to market not going over the market but bringing it just up to the market over time you can create huge value and that's how professional commercial property investors do it. They force value onto these assets and you want to be doing that as well. You can only do it if you understand the market and you know what you're targeting. So with the retail sector, there were four new leases written. There was 209 properties for lease 
and the listed vacancy rate was at 26.4%, so a fair bit of vacancy there. In the office sector, that's the most vacant sector in Canberra. There was 12 new leases written last month. For lease, there was 549 locations available to rent in Canberra. So it's a lot. You probably wouldn't want to be going into the office market there. And that represented 30.9% of the properties in Canberra are vacant. So very, very scary numbers there for office and in retail. Moving to industrial, there were six new leases written last month in Canberra. For lease, there was only 89 properties, and that represented 10.1% was the listed vacancy in Canberra for industrial. So it's better, a lot better than the other sectors. Just looking at the trending lease data for retail, it's been going down over time. It was a lot higher this time last year, and then also for office, so it's trending down, which is good. New leases. Uh, so in December, there were 26 new leases written. In January, there was 12. So, you know, that's still pretty good. There's definitely things happening in that market because it's a big city. So industrial, the trending graph is also going down. That was a lot higher previously this time last year. And for lease, yep. So in December, there was 20 new leases written for industrial assets in Canberra. So that's pretty cool. Um, this line January, there was six. Okay, so let's move on to the employment. All right. Now, the population of Canberra is 462,000. In January, there were 4,604 jobs available. 1,898 of those were high income jobs or higher income jobs. Um, that's over $100,000 plus. Job market in Canberra seems to be pretty good. It peaked for the amount of jobs in November last year at 5,932 and it is now at 4,604. So it's getting back to that November November peak, but it's been very, very steady. The lowest was 2,400 jobs in April last year. All right, so let's, oh, let's just check the working from home. So I like to understand what's going on with a working from home movement. So currently for the Australia-wide jobs, there was 8,307 jobs listed for people to work from home. That represents 3.67% of all the jobs in Australia. That is crazy. And this month was almost the highest that's ever been for the amount of jobs that were available for working from home. So back in April in 2021, there were 8,707 jobs listed for people to work from home. And last month in January, there were 8,307. So you're getting pretty close to that. It'll be interesting to see in February if that pips uh, the previous highs 3,880 of the jobs in January were jobs over 100,000 plus. So that actually represents 46.7% of all of the working from home jobs are actually higher income jobs, 100K plus 300, $400,000. So definitely a lot of money to be made from working from home. It's not going away and it's only going to benefit commercial property in the sense that these more lifestyle areas are going to have more people coming in there. It's going to boost the economy, which 
commercial property in those local markets is going to be boosted as well. Your cafes, your accountants, all those kind of lifestyle pubs, things like that. It's going to be very, very good, making a lot more locations, regions in Australia, a lot more viable to invest in. And this is what CP data does to you. So say you have a location that you don't know anything about. It's in a coastal area. You know it's getting pumped from the working from home movement. If you see an investment there that you think, oh, this is actually could be pretty good. You need to have solid data behind you looking at that investment to make sure that location actually stacks up. So you need to understand the local market that you're buying into. The agent's going to tell you it's awesome. They always do. Guess what? They're not working for you. They're working for the seller. So you need to have independent source of data like CP data to understand what you're doing and make really, really good choices. All right, guys, that's it for Data Don't Lie. The location this week was Canberra. Thank you to my guests, Jay Anderson and Kevin McLeod for the music and you, the listener. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Develop a Life production.